So I want to say hi to everybody at all of our campuses, uh, everybody joining us online, everybody in this room. I'm thrilled that you are here. I want to talk to you about a phrase. I did not run into it much growing up in the Midwest, but I heard it a lot when I moved to the Bay Area, killing it. Dude, you're killing it. Guys surfing steamers on the red board was killing it. Cellist playing Rachmaninoff was killing it. Those shoes are killing it. Killing it means, if you look online, having a ripped body, a cool fashion style, career success, a high level of achievement, going on envy-producing vacations, having fabulous hair, immense personal charm. Everybody wants to be killing it. Even at church, people want to know they're killing it. So turn to the person next to you real quickly and say, thou art killing it. (laughs) The pressure to kill it keeps starting earlier and earlier for kids. I am not making this up. USA Today said the two-year-old daughter of Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, little Northwest, was killing it when she got baptized not long ago. And so Beyonce's daughter, named Blue Ivy, has also got to be killing it. In the Bay Area, we have kind of perfected killing it. I grew up in Rockford, Illinois. In Rockford, Illinois, we did not kill it. We might have wounded it slightly. I'm not even sure we knew what it was. You can't kill it if you don't know what it is. Sometimes something happens and people wonder if killing it is really worth it. About 500 years ago, there was the son of a rich man. He was a soldier, kind of a womanizer. His name was Ignatius. And he was wounded in the legs in a battle by a cannonball. His legs were set badly and they looked crooked. And that was bad at court. He was concerned that he might not be able to attract really beautiful women if his legs didn't look good. So in an era with no anesthesia, Ignatius had his legs deliberately broken again, not once but twice, and reset so that they could look, so that he could have fabulous legs. Ignatius, you're killing it. Strange thing happened while he was healing. He described himself as a man given over to the vanities of the world a great and vain desire of winning glory. And when he would dream about that military conquest, a romantic conquest, it would make him feel great, but then that feeling would fade and he'd feel kind of hollow inside. But then when he read about people that did noble things for God and imagined doing something compassionate or being generous, he found that revisiting that thought later, the joy didn't fade, the delight lasted. And this sense that When God calls us to something, it produces a lasting stream of life within us. The ability to discern what is from God and what is not from God, what's noble and what's shallow for human flourishing is at the heart of what came to be known as Ignatian spirituality, a great gift that's part of the Christian tradition. And I believe people need this now more than ever. When I was reading about killing it online, there was one 20-something who put it like this. When I see somebody else killing it online, I'll think, darn. He didn't actually say darn. He used another word, but I can't use it here to express his frustration and discontent. And he said, but then 10 minutes later, I'll be like, shrug. This is a remarkably articulate contemporary expression of Ignatian spirituality. I dream it is I who have attained the vanities of the world. But 10 minutes later, I'm like, shrug. In fact, killing it ends up involving a whole lot of pressure. And we all know about this. 
I compare other people's beautiful Instagram life with my real dull ordinary life. Are my kids killing it? Are my abs killing it? Is my hair killing it? Is my resume killing it? Is my vacation? Vacations here are turning into a competitive sport. Plus, the problem with killing it is it never stays killed. You got to kill it again tomorrow. And the drive to be killing it leads people to overwork, addictions, envy. We all know about this. Anxiety, depression, isolation, exhaustion, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of failure. No kidding. I read not long ago an article by a 25-year-old woman who said she feels like a failure because she is not yet the CEO of a tremendously successful startup. 25 years old. Killing it isn't doing it. In fact, killing it is killing us. So, so, I want to take you to the city where they kind of invented killing it. And, and then they learn one day about another way to live. And we can and we will too. It's a city called Corinth. And little secret, we're actually going to spend the better part of this upcoming year looking at a letter written to the church in that city of Corinth by a man named Paul. And what I want to do today is to look at the dynamics of Corinth. I want to, it'll take a little patience, kind of walk through the history of Corinth at some length so that we can all see the incredible relevance of this book for your life and for our church and for where we live. So here we go. Corinth, located in Greece, it's actually on an isthmus, uh, a narrow strip of land that connects two larger areas of land. And on one side was a harbor that leads to Asia. On the other side is a harbor that leads to Italy and Europe. So this is an unbelievably little strategic piece of land. Uh, if commerce is going to happen, if trade's going to happen, it was the strategic trade route. The city of Corinth had been destroyed by Rome about 150 years before Christ, but now Roman peace, the Pax Romana, meant that global trade was available on an unprecedented scale, and that would be unbelievable wealth. So a city built on this site was clearly going to be a gold mine, and that's why Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth basically from scratch just a few decades before Jesus. In other words, to use our language, Corinth was a startup with all the dynamics and culture of a startup. Caesar populated it mostly with ex-soldiers, and freedmen, ex-slaves. So there was no landed aristocracy or nobility. And that meant this was just a mob of hungry, scrappy, highly ambitious risk-takers who were dissatisfied with old ways, old traditions, and, and driven to leverage new opportunities. This, in turn, attracted entrepreneurs from Greece and Italy and Egypt Infusions of new capital began to generate wealth until by Paul's day, many Corinthians had very serious fortunes that were quite new. And this in turn meant the real estate market in Corinth went crazy. One ancient petitioner asked the oracle at Delphi, how may I get rich, son of Zeus and Leto? And the oracle of Delphi answered by acquiring what lies between Corinth and Sicyon. In other words, Corinthian real estate. Buy property, flip houses, and you will be rich. Also, Corinth was a center of innovation because it was new. It was designed by Rome's best city planners. 
One ancient writer said that it had the most sophisticated water distribution system in the ancient world. In the Mediterranean world, water is always a big issue. Uh, This in turn reinforced their belief that human ingenuity and technology could solve any problem that people face. They were intensely proud of where they lived. They were very self-sufficient. They cherished the story that their city had divine origins. It had a divine founder named Corinthius. The first travel guide in history was written a little after Paul's time by uh, an ancient writer who was kind of the Rick Steves of the ancient world. And a big chunk of this travel guide is devoted to Corinth because it's such a magical, fabulous place. And he includes this observation. The idea that Corinthius founder of Corinth, was a son of Zeus, I have never heard anyone say seriously, except a majority of Corinthians. Like, we live in this magic divine place. Also, partly because the population there was so transient, lots and lots of sailors, lots and lots of money, Corinth developed a reputation for a kind of anything-goes attitude towards sexual expression. Aphrodite was, of course, the goddess of love in the Greek pantheon and and of beauty and of fertility. And the temple to Aphrodite was in Corinth. One ancient writer before Paul's time said the old temple had more than 1,000 temple prostitutes as part of the way that the cult worked. Another Greek writer named Aristophanes said that promiscuous sex was so associated with Corinth, he made up a word, basically Corinthianize, as a euphemism for sexual activity. Plato used the phrase, a woman of Corinth, as a euphemism to mean prostitute. So Corinth is like the home of the original summer of love. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was religiously extremely pluralistic. Archaeologists have found temples to over 26 different gods. And then, of course, emperor worship flourished there. It was founded by the emperor, Julius Caesar. And then, of course, all these immigrants would be bringing their religions, their gods into it, including some from this little nation of Israel who worshiped the God of Israel. By Paul's day, Corinth was the future, very clearly. This was so true that when that part of Greece was made a colony of Rome, it was Corinth, not ancient historic Athens. It was Corinth that was made the capital. Uh, Athens' best days were behind it. Corinth's best days were all in front of it. Athens versus Corinth was like the tired, aging past versus the vibrant, vigorous future. It was like Harvard versus Stanford. It was like New York versus California. We're the future, baby. There was ceaseless building going on. And every project and every monument had inscriptions designed to promote the status of the builder because it was really all about status, wealth and possessions and education. It was an honor versus shame, status-obsessed society. I'll tell you about just one of those inscriptions. Uh, A man named Babius had a fountain built in Corinth as a monument to himself. And he wrote on it, Babius paid for this monument out of his own wealth and approved it by his own authority as a city magistrate. And just to make sure nobody missed it, he had the inscription chiseled on it twice. You're killing it, Babius. The number of such inscriptions in Corinth was quite staggering. One author writes, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. 
What a weird society where people would publicly post their accomplishments, honors, experiences, and possessions in order to be seen and liked by other people. What a weird place that must have been. A number of authors have noted this. Inscriptions were to currency what the social media is to us. Who you are is who other people think you are. Paul is going to have a lot to say. We're going to look at this about boasting and reputation and weakness and shame and where life really lies. Over these next weeks and months, we're going to look at all of this because these are just real people like you and me. And they want a flourishing life. And it seems like wealth and status and honor and reputation and security and being beautiful and being healthy. And so we'll bring it. And as you might expect, given the contest for wealth, Corinth quickly gained a reputation for being the most competitive city in the ancient world, financially and in other areas. The Isthmian Games were held there. Along with the Olympics, they were the most famous games, competitions in the ancient world. They featured not only athletic events like wrestling and racing and so on, but also music and, and like poetry slams and, and oratorical contests where people would make lots of money if they won. Tourists from all over the ancient world came to Corinth to see this. And of course, they brought lots of tourist dollars with them. A writer named Apollos says that Corinth was a city of unprincipled profit takers who would stop at nothing to outdo, outgain, outearn their rivals. Is this sounding at all like any place you know? It was so cutthroat that another ancient proverb said, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Or it got expressed another way in Corinth, only the tough survive. Only the tough survive. They valued toughness so much, it was the first city in all of Greece to host the gladiator games. But if you dug a little beneath the surface of that great city, you found a strange kind of vulnerability. You would hear faint echoes of a strange kind of despair. By legend, by myth, the first king of Corinth was a man named Sisyphus. It's a name that might ring a bell. The temple of Sisyphus was still around in Paul's day. You could go there. You could worship there. Sisyphus, by myth, was an innovator in navigation and commerce. He was wealthy. And in his hubris, he believed he was the smartest guy in the room. He believed that he could outsmart even death. So that when he died, he had his wife throw his body into the river, but without any funeral dues, which you would always have in your body when you died. So that when death came for him, Sisyphus would be able to say to death, Oh, I don't have any money to pay for the crossing of the river Styx. Wait here for a moment. I'll run home, get change, and then come back. And he went home, but he didn't come back. He stayed and lived to a ripe old age. He outsmarted even death. But when he was old, eventually death came for him. And this time, death assigned him a task so that he could not run away again. And he was condemned to roll a huge boulder up a giant hill. And every time he got that enormous boulder with tremendous strain almost to the top of the hill, it would slip from his grasp and roll all the way back down. And he would have to trudge back down, and then he would roll it up again. And, then, and this goes on through all of eternity. And this story captivated writers and artists, still does. Albert Camus, the myth of Sisyphus, an amazing expression of the power of despair in a meaningless world where life is just exhaustion and effort and empty. And it was into this great city 
unprecedented wealth, uber-competitive, hypersexualized, status-obsessed, religiously pluralistic, untethered from tradition, proud, self-sufficient, striving, anxious, spiritually empty. One day came a tent maker named Paul and an alternative to killing it. We read about his coming to Corinth first in the book of Acts, where it says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Anti-Semitism has a very, very long history. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Now, the fact that Paul was a tent maker is going to be real important to this story and to this letter and what we'll learn. Tent making, to be bent over sewing uh, tents with leather or with canvas or fixing a harness or sandal or something, was considered to be a menial, slavish, low-status occupation. And that's Paul. And he stayed with tent makers. He lived in their home, which would have doubled as their shop. So you have to picture him teaching while he's doing this. People will sometimes think about Paul, you know, just at leisure, walking around, dropping these gems. No, he was multitasking. He would have been working at his craft and then trying to teach people while he was doing that. When tourists came for the Isthmian Games, Paul, this brilliant thinker and speaker, was not one of the orders competing with others for lots of money. That will be real important in this story. He was slaving away like some kind of menial craftsman making tents for the tourists who came to look at the games to stay in. And here's the thing, and this is part of what started to kind of turn everything upside down, disorient the Corinthians. Paul didn't have to do this. Paul had an education. He had a brilliant mind. He was deeply literate, not just in the Hebrew scriptures, but in ancient writings. He was a Roman citizen, for crying out loud. Paul could have come as a brilliant lecturer, supported by wealthy patrons, and we'll find out there were people that were trying to give him money, and he refused them, uh, teaching a superior philosophy at leisure. Instead, he comes as a low-status, tent-making slave and proclaims a carpenter killed on a cross. Paul was a man of considerable status inconsistency. Wonderful phrase. Telling the story of another man of considerable status inconsistency named Jesus, who, although he was in very nature God, took on the likeness of a human being and became a servant and humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Here's how Paul starts this letter that we're going to immerse ourselves in. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what jumps right out at you are how the names Christ or Jesus or Lord are found 11 times in just these three verses. Paul is preoccupied with this man. 
How weird is this? In Corinth, Paul comes, and this hero is a carpenter who died the shameful death of a person marginalized from society as a despised criminal, a failure by every conventional standard. He is convinced that Jesus is not only the revelation who God is, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, but that Jesus is also actually the expression of a flourishing human life. If you know what does it look like to be really human, look at Jesus. And we all want to know this. In fact, later on in this letter, when Paul is talking about humanity, he will talk about Adam. In the Hebrew scriptures, Adam is the first man. And then Paul will call Jesus the last Adam and the second man. Such fascinating language. On the cross, Jesus is putting to death sin and guilt and hell and mortality that have destroyed the human race. Jesus is killing it. And then they put Jesus in a tomb, and they roll a stone in front of the tomb. Corinthians know all about heroes with big stones. But unlike Sisyphus, Jesus just moved the stone one time, and when Jesus moved the stone, it stayed moved. And so Paul says Jesus is not just the last Adam. He is the second man. He's the beginning of a new way of life. Almost, if you want to think about it like that, another shot at the human race. In his resurrection, he's starting a new way to be human. And the pathway to human flourishing is not through accumulation and wealth and success and status and self-sufficiency, but through surrender to this God and humility and generosity and loneliness with carpenters and tent makers and slaves, for God's sake, and a few wealthy people in this community of status inconsistency, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor. And Paul's kind of a poster boy for this, even just starting with his name here in this letter. Paul was a Greek name, but he used to be named Saul. Now, Saul was the name that would have had a lot of meaning for him. Saul was the first king of Israel, name of great pride. And Paul gives up that name, gives up his old pride, his old ethnocentrism to identify with people that he once despised. Paul now. Paul, really? In order to embrace the whole world of people that Jesus loves. Paul. Now, he does mention that he's an apostle. So in Corinth, they would at least expect him to mention he's not just apostle. He's the greatest of all the apostles. He's Paul for crying out loud. He wrote more books in the New Testament than anybody else. But he doesn't promote his apostleship. It is not an accident that is in this very letter, Paul would write, for I am least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul, you're killing it. And then he includes this guy, says, our brother Sosthenes. Maybe Sosthenes is a real successful guy. Sosthenes is also mentioned in Acts 18 in Corinth when Paul is in trouble for talking about Jesus before a Roman official named Gallio. This happens in Corinth. We're told, then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern, whatever. We sometimes think it's a challenge to follow Jesus in the Bay Area because Christianity might be considered unfashionable by some or unlikely by some. Paul talks about our brother Sosthenes who gets beaten by a crowd and the government doesn't care at all. And still he stands with Paul to love Corinth. 
Sosthenes, you're killing it, man. What a strange community. Tent makers and carpenters and slaves and guys getting beaten up. Really? In Corinth, for crying out loud? And, and Paul starts teaching the Corinthians. It's kind of subtle, but it starts right away. There's, just, there's no book like the Bible. It's going to be so much fun for us to go through this. To the church of God in Corinth, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Lord. This is somewhat unique, not just to the church of God in Corinth, but to everybody else too. In other words, hey, Corinth, you're not all that. You're not the only pebble on the beach. What matters actually is not that you are in Corinth, but that somehow, somehow, somehow Christ is in you. There is a reason why this letter has been around 2,000 years, gang. It is unbelievable. Last year, we immersed ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount, the most influential talk ever given, this strange teaching that the spiritual is real, that the kingdom is here, and therefore, blessed are you who the world says is not blessed. And... And all the teachings about how now with Jesus it is possible to live a life where you turn the other cheek, where you go the second mile, where you are anxious for nothing, where you ask and receive. And for Paul, it's like he's so captivated by this Jesus and his teachings that he examines them all in light now of the cross and the resurrection and makes it available now, not just for little Israel, but for the whole world. So I want to invite everybody this weekend, I want to invite you to sign on for this adventure. Begin to immerse yourself in this book, the book of 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to get one. Actually, if you don't have one and you want one, there's one in the pew racks in front of you in this room. Just take it home with you. Just steal a Bible from the church. <laughs> it's a gift of grace. And we'll be thrilled about that. Or we'll help you get one. And start reading this book of 1 Corinthians and take your time and, and think about it and reflect on it. Imagine what it was like to write it. Imagine what it was like to read it. Ask questions about it. Talk about it with a friend. Invite somebody who you think maybe they're getting a little tired of killing it every week to be a part of this series at our church and go through it together with you. Pray over it. Try actually doing some of the stuff that Paul says. Paul grapples in this letter, people think that the Bible is this kind of ancient, irrelevant book. Paul grapples in this letter with religious pluralism, multiculturalism, human divisiveness, a fractured society, extreme sexual activity and scandal, the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophesying, gender roles, how men and women are to relate in the church, how they are to relate in the home, the reality of the spiritual realm, how to pursue spiritual growth, how to not quarrel, how to not grumble, how to not be greedy. It has the greatest chapter ever written on spiritual gifts. It has the greatest chapter, the greatest words ever written on love, words that have been read at more weddings than any other words in the history of the human race. It has the greatest chapter on hope ever written, this book. And you should know, most of this letter, Paul is taking the church in Corinth to the woodshed. They are mostly terrible Christians. They are like spiritual knuckleheads. When I was a kid, if my brother or sister got in trouble, I always enjoyed listening to my parents talk to them because it was like, I'm not the one in trouble. Well, reading this book is kind of that way. But Paul doesn't start there. He starts, grace to you. Hey, Corinth, 
a crazy ladder-climbing, status-obsessed, money-making, promoting, you know, self-aggrandizing, self-sufficient grace. Um, Greek letters always used to start when they would correspond with each other with the, with the word kairain, which meant greetings in Greek. Paul just changes it ever so slightly to charis, grace. And then he would add to it from the wonderful history of Israel, shalom, peace, flourishing, would be our word for it, flourishing. Grace has come to Corinth. You didn't earn it. You didn't acquire it. You didn't trade for it. You didn't compete for it. You just need it. Sometimes when you live in Corinth, you forget that. You forget that there's a basic helplessness for Sisyphus. Uh, In 2010, in Chile, some of you remember this story, 33 miners were trapped 2,000 feet below the ground for 69 days. And their need drove them to God because, you know, they couldn't do it themselves. They actually asked a Christian who was in their midst, Jose Enriquez, who they knew well for his faith, to lead them in a daily Bible study. It was quite well attended. Anybody want to guess how many people went to that daily Bible study? (laughs) 33. They had nothing better to do. And he got down on his knees the first time and started to pray, Lord, We're not the best of men, but have pity on us. And then he got more specific. Lord, Victor Segovia here knows that he drinks too much. You'd think Victor might object at that point, like, you know. But when you're desperate, you tend to get real. Nobody had ever lived that low that long and survived to tell about it until now. It's a massive rescue operation. Government had the drill two holes, half a mile deep into the earth, get supplies and so took weeks and weeks. And when they finally got them out, they came out one at a time, and every man was this unbelievable celebration. Just the whole world exploded. And on the site, oh my gosh, they went crazy. Mario Sepulveda is the second guy out, and he's just dancing, jumping up and down, high-fiving all of his rescuers. The whole nation was just charmed by this guy. And then came a great-grandfather. And then came a 19-year-old boy. And then Victor Segovia. Every one of them had a story, and not one of them was perfect. Yanni Barrios was rescued. He actually had two women waiting for him above the ground. One was his wife, and then one was his mistress. And the first woman did not know about the second woman, which may be why he was one of the last men to come out of the mine. (laughs) Kind of interesting. These are big, tough miners. Not one of them said, I don't need any help. Not one of them said, I can rescue myself. No thanks. They all knew if someone up there did not come down here where they were, they had no hope. They were not going to save themselves. They were not going to roll that boulder up the hill. So grace comes to a mine in Chile, to a city called Corinth, right here. So this week, as we begin this journey together, just live in grace. 
Just humble yourself, confess your sin, ask God for help. Let go for a little while of the need to prove yourself or advance yourself or promote yourself or save yourself and just let grace come. This is the beginning of Paul's message. And for Paul, all of this message, all that Jesus did and taught is expressed in one single idea, one single image, one, one expression of divine love that is so mysterious and powerful that it has become the greatest force for life change in human history. It has transformed individuals and marriages and families and even whole cultures with unbelievable power, and it can change yours, and this is what we're going to talk about next week. Meanwhile, meanwhile, me, what am I going to do in my condition? What am I going to do with my pride? What am I doing with my selfishness and my stubborn ego? What am I doing with my deceit? What am I doing with my apathy towards other people? What am I doing with my anger? What am I doing with my bitterness? What am I doing with my sinful self? What am I doing with the evil that is not just all around me but inside me? I'm killing it. I'm killing it. And you can too. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, thank you that into our lives, into our Corinth, into our world where it can just feel like we've been pushing that boulder up the hill longer than we can remember. We do not have to rescue ourselves. Grace comes. Our friend Jesus comes. I pray especially right now, God, for everybody that feels like they're about 2,000 feet beneath the earth, buried by failure or hopelessness or fear or guilt or regret or exhaustion, uncertainty. God, would you touch them right now And just like grace came to Corinth, let it come here everywhere it's needed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.